right. Welcome. We're glad y'all are here. Y'all doing all right tonight? Good. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, if you want to turn there. Let me pray and we'll get going. Lord, we come to you now and we are very thankful for this time tonight. I pray that you would guide our time as you see fit. I pray for honesty. I pray that we would have hearts and minds that are softened and ready to receive your word and to be guided where we need to be guided, to be convicted where we need to be convicted, to be encouraged and edified where we need to be encouraged and edified. Lord, it is a privilege to get to open your word in a gathering like this and to get to consider something that's breathed out by God. And so I pray that we wouldn't take it lightly, and I pray that we would enjoy um, what you say about what the church is supposed to look like tonight, or what the church is supposed to be. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, in God's providence, our Wednesday night focus and our Sunday night focus are matching up. You know, last two weeks we were in Romans, and for the last two Sundays we were in Romans. And so it was kind of, as the guy teaching and preaching, it was kind of nice to be in the same book and not have to uh, cover so much ground. But it's kind of cool this week. We're, we're in 1 Corinthians. This Sunday is going to be our membership renewal. And so our focus uh, will be on what the church is supposed to be on Sunday. We're going to talk about what it means to be a member, what it means to be the church. And, and right now you're probably thinking, I haven't filled out those forms that Scott asked me to fill out. And so uh, everyone use this as a reminder and fill out your forms because everything's electronic. The one and the I think forty three exclamation points is the most exclamation points I've ever used. Yeah, that's not good enough. That is falling quite short of the requirement. That's good. So are we. Um, uh, this Sunday is membership renewal, and so it's cool because the focus in Corinthians is the church. Well, what is the church? What does it look like? What's it supposed to be? Where do we spend our time? And we're going to be talking about that on Sunday. So for the next two Wednesdays, we're in 1 Corinthians, and then the two after that, we're in 2 Corinthians, and then the one after that, we are in the summer. So we really only have four studies left for Wednesdays. And so probably, uh, I was looking, I was counting it all up yesterday, and we would start Galatians in the fall, and because the pastoral epistles are a bit shorter, and you can maybe do a couple of, like 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, don't have to be three weeks, we could probably do one week. Um, Because of that, I think we might finish the Bible uh, in December. Now, that doesn't mean you're done with it. It just means we will have actually taught through every book, which is kind of neat in the life of a fairly young church. We're not as young as we used to be, but a 13-year-old church uh, that maybe by the end of the year we'll we'll get through uh, the survey studies of all of the texts. So that's actually pretty cool. To break the ice tonight, I want us to consider... And I'll try to keep a little list here, and whoever has the best one gets two gold stars. The best, most popular advertising slogans that you've ever heard. We have more, that's the best one. Okay. Where's the beef? More dips than Krispy Kreme. Where's the beef? <laughs> What's funny is that where's the beef, as popular as it is, does not 
support my cause tonight. So we'll write it down. But what are some others? Advertising studies. Quick. Give it to Mike, <laughs> Mike, he'll eat it. Just do it. Give me a break. What else? Calgon. <laughs> Remember, I think every Mother's Day, me and my three brothers would get my mom a thing of Calgon because of that commercial. It's like, maybe mom won't be so stressed if we get her some cow. <laughs> what else? You deserve a break day. What's that? McDonald's. You deserve. And now what is McDonald's? It's a hamburger place. <laughs> What is the McDonald's? What is it? Yeah, I'm loving it. Yeah. It is a little creepy. Clowns are creepy. What else? Just do it. I'm loving it. <laughs> That's awesome. Burger King is break the windows. Smash the windows out. Have y'all seen that ridiculous thing? People have been calling Burger Kings, acting like they're the fire marshal, saying, there's gas built up in the building, you have to kick all the windows out. And there are Burger Kings across the nation Smashing out their own windows because someone called and said you have to release the gas pressure. Yeah. No, there's there's way too many of those to cover. The cheesy church slogans. <laughs> the 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 most popular just general advertising slogans. We're not good at advertising. Every time we try, it's cheesy on a sign, and people make fun of us as they drive by. Just do it. Give me a break. Calgon, take me away. You deserve a break today. I'm loving it. What else? Yeah. Have it your way. That's good. <laughs> That's funny. You're not you when you're when you're hungry. Yeah. What else? Think any others? Think of the most recent ones you can think of. Taglines. Alcatraz for the rescue. Plop plop fizz fizz. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that supports what I'm getting at tonight. <laughs> plop, plop, fizz, fizz. What else? Any others? Recent ones? Yeah. 
You're in good hands with Allstate? Yeah. They have so many weird commercials that are weird. Yeah, it gives you wings. Nice. All right, so let's take these most popular ones we've talked about. Just do it. Give me a break. Calgon, take me away. You deserve a break today. I'm loving it. Have it your way. What do they all have in common? Me and they all have something else in common too. They're definitely selling something. But what else do they have in common? Just do it. Give me a break. Calgon, take me away. You deserve a break today. Have it your way. I'm loving it. When? Ah, there we go. Right now. So, each of the slogans have in common the dominant ideas of our day. Individualism and self-indulgence. You, now. Every one of those, if you break it down, you can find you and now. Have it your way. Have it right now. Your way. It's for you. You have it your way. Just do it even. Who? You. Just do it. When? Right now. And so they all have a focus on the you and the now, on individualism and self-indulgence, which are dominant ideas of our day. Individualism and self-indulgence. And we're going to talk about that tonight because it was a problem in the church in Corinth. Individualism, self-indulgence. Dever has a note in his, um, in his commentary. And Dever's the guy who wrote the Old Testament and New Testament surveys that we utilize for this study, and it kind of gives the outline for our study. And so when I quote him, I'm quoting the guy whose study we're, we're utilizing so that we don't have to try to reinvent the wheel and write a new study every two weeks, or every week, really. He says, The individual conscience is revered and treated as an inviolable demi-deity to whom ultimate allegiance is owed. What does that mean? What do you think that means? I'm going to read it again. The individual conscience is revered and treated as an inviolable demi-deity to whom ultimate allegiance is owed. What's that mean? We worship ourselves? Yes, the most important thing is what I want and how something makes me feel. And how quick we can get it. Dever. <laughs> well, his name's Mark Dever. Yeah, he's, he's the uh, pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C., and he's one of the most brilliant people I've ever gotten to study. He's really... Uh, I like to study people who are a good bit smarter than me, and he is a good bit smarter than me, that's for sure. So, the individual conscience is revered and treated as a demi-deity to whom ultimate allegiance is owed. Our allegiance is to how we feel. Our allegiance is to our conscience. This is, um, we're talking about the culture here. In case you haven't caught on, the church isn't supposed to be like this. That's going to be what we're talking about tonight. But ultimately, our culture is a lot about how I feel, what I want, how things affect me. So, you know, if we believe that, what are some examples of that today? Divorce rate? Yeah. Yeah. If it's just about what I want and someone doesn't provide that, I can replace that person. Like the dry cleaners. What else? Credit card debt. I want it and I want it now. I have one credit card. And I haven't used it 
in seven years because the original balance was so high from my early 20s that it's taken me this long to pay that sucker way down. Because in my early 20s, I didn't just want a particular truck, but I wanted to outfit it with everything I could put on there. And since I didn't have cash, these nice people over here were going to give me this little plastic thing and swipe, swipe, swipe. I've got a new bed cover. I've got lights. I've got custom exhaust, wheels, mags, everything. It was amazing. And I still pay for it today as a man in my mid-30s who rode a scooter for a long time. So credit card debt, what are some other examples of this in our day? Anyone seen American Pickers? It's essentially, it's awesome. I like the show. I'll just say that. I'm not trying to like say that show's the devil. Uh, the show is about going and digging through people's piles of treasure. And then it's just, I accumulated all this stuff and now I'm going to let y'all accumulate it. And it just goes from one person to another and it's enjoyable. I mean, but it's certainly not like a deeply fulfilling thing. I mean, the whole point is the guys are selling it to make money because there's a significant market for junk. And so um, the whole, y'all, have y'all experienced what he talked about? Where you, you really, you set your heart and your mind on something and you get it and somehow it doesn't quite deliver the way you thought it was going to deliver? Anybody ever experienced that? No? Okay. <laughs> Would you stop here? Let's just all take a deep breath. Yeah. <laughs> De- Dever, um, we're going to talk about this a little more, but the, the idea that what we want and when we want it is, is very much driven by the way our culture is and the time that we live. So we have this dynamic where in Scripture, God says that He appoints where you live and how long you live there. He appoints your time and your geography. And then it also, we also have this reality of the fact that where we live, we're, we're wildly affected by the culture that God has placed us in. And we're not supposed to be the same as the culture. We're supposed to be different. But I think part of tonight's study, part of what we need to accomplish, is really taking an honest look at ourselves and saying, how much, you know, if you think about it like a mirror, like at like 45 degrees, either you're going to reflect the culture back to God or God to the culture. It's one or the other. And it, it can't really be both because it only goes one way. And so what I want us to consider tonight is, you know, we talk about our consciences and the, we, we aren't going to violate our consciences. And there's actually a lot more in the news right now about violating our conscience and how laws are trying to be passed to cause particular people to violate their conscience, while other people will refuse to violate their conscience on account of the laws that are passed. I mean, it is a real sign of just how self-centered we are as a culture. 
It's all about what I want. And frankly, if you don't want what I want, you're now my enemy. That's kind of the way the culture works. Mark, uh, again, Dever, he says, what is the use of the church? What is the use of the church? That's a question I want to pose to you all and let you think about it for a second. When I ask, what is the use of the church? I just want you to think about what comes to mind. Don't say it out loud because it will be embarrassing for everybody if you're wrong. So if you think about what's the use of the church, the first thing that comes to mind, what is the use of the church? What is, what is the purpose that we serve? If you answer in terms of what the church does for you, you've missed something crucial, something very clear in the New Testament that may be imperceptible to our eyes because of the fog of our culture. The biblical answer to this question does not begin with what the church does for you as much as what the church does for God. Remember what we talked about on Sunday. The center of the gospel is God, and He's righteous. If anything else is at the center of the gospel, it's not the gospel anymore. And there's no telling where we're going to end up. So if the center of the gospel is what I want, or what I perceive to be my need, we're off kilter already because it's supposed to be about God, what the church does for God. And when we get this, the church becomes more than another item on the list of private virtues we cultivate by moral effort in order to avoid a list of private vices. It's just, let's try to do some more good stuff morally so we don't do as much bad stuff morally. And he says the church, when we get it, becomes the manifestation of God in this world. And that's what he's getting at in 1 Corinthians. That the church, when we, we understand who we are, what we're supposed to do, remember what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. To become the righteousness of God, we, the church, is who we're talking about, is to be the manifestation of God in this world. They should be able to look at us and know what God's like. They should be able to look at us and know how God thinks. They should be able to look at us and know how God acts. So as we consider the text, I want you to try and identify if there are any areas in your life where you think more like a consumer than a worshiper. And is church one of them? So I was trying to think, how could, I was literally, today, this afternoon, I was leaving my house, I was thinking, what would be a good way <coughs> to identify if, if we're really more consumer-driven than we realize? And I'm just kind of thinking about that, and I'm, and I'm driving to lunch to meet Brad Gallion, um, and I'm driving, and I think to myself, I like driving in the rain. I mean, I've been mulling over that question. God, what's a way that I could tell if we're consumer-driven or not? And my first thought was, I like driving in the rain. Now, it was a humorous moment in my car. And maybe you'll get there in a minute. But I'm trying to figure out if I'm consumer-driven, and I follow it up with the thought, I like driving in the rain. Now, does the purpose of driving in the rain have anything to do with what I like or dislike? I mean, it's okay to enjoy things, right? But the whole, the whole activity, the whole thing that was going on, the rain was coming down, the water was filling the streets, I'm in my car, and I'm driving, there's all these things happening, and I'm focusing on if I like it or not. Do you see that? I'm focusing on if I like it or not. Like I thought, I like driving in the rain, and then my next thought was, I bet some people don't like driving in the rain. And I bet... There's probably some group online for people who don't like driving in the rain. And I bet I could even find one for people like me, who I could identify with, who like driving in the rain. But the point was ridiculous in that 
what does driving in the rain have to do with what I like or what I don't like? And what it made me think about was that's a perfect example of knowing if we are consumer-driven or not. Is our first response to something if we like it or not? Because if that's your main concern when you are addressed with something or you engage something, if the first concern is whether you like it or not, you are being consumer-driven in your thinking. We show up on Sunday morning as worshipers. How many churches do people show up to where the morning is filled with, there's a new worship song. Mm, I don't like it. Is that what it's about? Did we share it? Because maybe you'll like it? Or a sermon, which, of course, this last week, I like it, right? Because, right? Okay, affirmation, thank you. I feel better now. Um, but like, a sermon. I like that. Okay, is that, is that what the morning was about? Okay, you read a book. I don't like that very much. Okay, well, it's a book on, you know, timeless truths. It's not just about if you like it or not. Do y'all see what I'm getting at? If, if we are constantly seeing things, hearing things, hear a new song, come to corporate worship, um, I have heard statements about, like, the tortillas that we have, the little weird tortillas that we chop up. We chop up 4,700 tortilla bits every Sunday and use about 200 of them. So there's always an abundance of tortilla bits. Um, but it's, you know, people talk about if, if they, I don't, I, don't like, I don't like that. Well, that's not what it's about! In fact, there was one Sunday where, I'm going to totally throw him on the bus, Bud Jones put the wrong juice in the deal. Do you all remember that Sunday? It was a little bit tart, right? And so we are taking the Lord's Supper. It's not about us. And, and I'm thankful he did it. Because what did I do? I eat the tortilla because I like the tortilla. And then I drink the juice and I don't like that. It's not about if I like it or not. We're taking the Lord's Supper. And so this is indicative of if we, if we approach things on, I like it, I don't like it, I like that, I don't like that, then we're being very consumer-driven. And we do, when we do that when it comes to church, we're being, we're being consumers in a place where we should be worshipers. So the background for 1 Corinthians here is, is very different than the background in Rome. Paul's experience with the church in Corinth was way hands-on. Remember the church in Rome? Paul didn't establish it. Paul had never been there. He had never engaged them face-to-face in the church in Rome. But the church in Corinth, he was very, very familiar with. He founded it. He knew the church well. And according to Acts 18, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth laboring to establish and strengthen the church. So for background, as we're diving into a new book, Paul was very familiar with Corinth, and he had been there, and he knew people, he knew names, he knew faces. He was very familiar with their struggles as a new church. Corinth was located on the main route from Rome to the east. So Corinth was a lot like Rome in that from Rome to the east, it was a center of business, commerce, travel, and culture. Business, commerce, travel, and culture, which makes it a great place to spread the gospel, right? Let's take the gospel there. So it affects people in business. It affects people in the culture. It affects people who are traveling. And it can spread. And much of this letter is written in response to a letter that they apparently wrote to him. As you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll see in your letter that you wrote, I, I respond in this way, or in response to what you wrote, I say this. And so there's indications that this first 
this 1 Corinthians, this letter we know as 1 Corinthians, there's actually other letters to the Corinthian church, but these are the only two that are canonized in Scripture. Um, but in this one, we can see that it's a response to something that they'd written to him. So we know that the relationship is a good bit closer. It's more, it's more personal. And that helps us because when we start reading it, it gets real personal real quick. Paul's responses to this letter indicate his goal of teaching them what should characterize the church and why. That's our focus tonight and next week. What should characterize the church and why? The first thing that he indicates is that the church should be holy. We probably would have guessed that, right? Right? That's kind of a gimme. It's like, like the Jesus answer. But yeah, the church should be holy. But he, he doesn't assume that they know that. He goes to it in the beginning and he stays there. Look at 1-2. Look at just the very beginning of the letter. It says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. What is sanctified? Set apart, Set apart made holy. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So just from that opening, we see people who are set apart, who are sanctified by God, for God, and then those people are the ones who call upon the name of the Lord. They have that in common. So they're holy. And look at eight. It says, um, uh, so that you're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we are guilty when Jesus comes back to judge the earth, that means we're not holy. But if we're holy, we're made holy by someone else, and so we can be guiltless in the day of his return. And that's who Paul's writing to, those who are set apart, those who are sanctified, those who are guiltless. So this leads us to what we mean when we say the church is holy. When we say the church is holy, we mean it's strange to the world. If you're taking notes, write down, the church is holy... A little sub-deal, strange to the world. I want us to see that this is the beginnings of the church. This is like first century Christians. They're facing all kinds of trials, all kinds of troubles. And he wants them to understand, you'll be, in your holiness, you'll be strange to the world. Now you might think, well, strange people are generally rejected people or they're weirdos, or no one wants to sit with them at lunch because they're strange, or whatever. And so we, we hear strange, and we think, well, how is that good if we're wanting to win people over and, and spread the gospel? But he explains that. Look at 121. In 121, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. I'm going to read it again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So if we preach and people get saved, what do we know about our preaching? What? It worked, and why did it work? Because it's true? Because it pleased God? How did it work? Because God was at work, but what about the preaching? What do we know about the preaching? It was folly. So that encouragement y'all gave me a few minutes ago, thanks a lot. Because it means it's folly. What, God, what he's getting at here is that 
God's ways are higher than our ways, and his ways are strange. When I look at that, and I think, like I take preaching seriously. Ben takes preaching seriously. Brad takes preaching seriously. Greg Fields is going to preach in a couple weeks. He's going to take it seriously. We are still not dependent upon the preaching itself. The preaching is important, but it says, God says that um, the wisdom of God is to save those through the folly of what we preach. So when people believe and are saved because they hear the preaching, even through the folly of what we preach, they're saved. So it's not contingent upon being liked is what we're getting at here. You don't have to win people over and win a, win a, a popularity contest which was a problem in this church. Remember, there were some who followed this guy and some who followed that guy. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But it wasn't about popularity. It was about what we preached and how we preached it and God working in spite of us sometimes. So it's like, well, strange. We're going to be strange. We're going to be... People are going to look at us like we're weird. Yeah, a bunch of Christian weirdos are how God saves lost people. It's not... I I grew up in a youth group where the, the youth pastor's goal admittedly, he said this, like he didn't hide this, this is what he did, get all the popular kids here and all the others will show up. And he was Papa Joe. And so he would get all these popular kids who were good athletes, particularly guys who didn't have strong father figures. And they would show up, and sure enough, everyone else would show up. But you have to wonder... Is it the gospel that we're hoping is appealing to people, or is it just popularity in a crowd? And so this thinking is important to understand because, remember, we don't want to violate our consciences, yet we, we don't want to violate our consciences because we we're called to be holy. But the culture doesn't want to violate their conscience because they want what they want when they want it and how they want it. Well, the problem is our conscience is different than the culture's conscience. So if we feel convictions about something and the culture doesn't feel those convictions and they're like, you're a bunch of weirdos. Yeah, that's the way it works. You can actually be encouraged in knowing that this wasn't a mistake by God. Like You're like, okay, God, you told me to say these things and now everyone thinks I'm a weirdo. It's okay because everyone became a weirdo at some point, right? And so what I'm getting at is that you don't have to just try to be you know, off the wall and unsavory and don't know what it means to be winsome and tactical in your words, but it's not the tactical nature of your words and the winsome nature of your spirit that necessarily wins people over. It's God doing a work that's beyond that, and we have to understand that we will be strange to the world. In 2.14, it says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It's not up to you who is spiritually discerning. It's not up to you who is spiritually discerning. So if you share truth with someone and they reject it, you maybe shouldn't be quite so shocked because things of God are spiritually concerned. The natural person who has not been affected by God, who has not been indwelled by the Spirit, who has not been given the gift of righteousness that maybe you're there to tell them about, in the moment they first hear about it, they may think you're a total weirdo because those things are discerned by the Spirit. But if you know the reason you discern them is the Spirit, you're not going to feel bad about being thought strange by the world. You're going to persevere in the truth. You're going to move forward in what you know to be right. Dever has a deal. He says, our only hope lies in being estranged from the messages of wisdom in this fallen world. Think of it in those terms. Like the world offers up wisdom, right? What are some things that the world would tell you is wise?
Yeah, save, save, save. Have a good retirement plan. Red Bull gives you wings. Yeah, especially if you ever work a night shift. What else does the world tell us? Wisdom. Wisdom from the world. Follow your heart. Just follow your heart. It does not matter if it is wickedly deceived and will lead you off of a cliff. You just follow it. What else? Spend it all because you can't take it with you. My youth minister actually gave me some advice on that line too. Rack up credit card debt because it all goes away when you die. That's what he said. Yeah, it's good. Sage wisdom that lasted the years. What else? Wisdom of the world. Yeah, prepare for the occupation that'll make the most money because it's all about money. What else? Do unto others before they do it to you. Yes, it's a little bit different than the golden rule. What else? Get a college degree. Get a college degree in your How's that working out? Anyone got like piles of student debt? Fantastic. Love is natural. Yes. Just a feeling. Just a natural feeling. As opposed to what scripture says, if you will to love someone, you can. Isn't that romantic? I love you, honey, because I'm forcing myself to do it. Just do it. it. Nike. Yeah. Yeah, so the wisdom of the world is is a lot about look out for number one. And we're going to be strange to the world. And when we think about it in those terms, our only hope lies in making sure that we do seem strange to the wisdom of the world. If you're thinking, man, I think I've got this Christian thing down because... You know, I'm moving along, and all my worldly friends totally love everything I'm saying. They're not offended by anything I've done or said. Man, I think I figured this thing out. Well, the reality is, if if we don't look different, that's bad news for us. And if it's bad news for us, it's bad news for them. So we're strange to the world, but the important thing about being strange to the world is that we're special to God. Now, you don't hear this a lot from us as church leaders but special to God is a very real thing. I mean, I'm not saying you're a special snowflake. You're a wretched sinner, rest assured. But we're wretched sinners who are saved by love, right? Saved by the grace of God. And so we are strange to the world, but to be holy is to be special to God. Look at 3.16, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So are we special to God? Absolutely. What is implied in this verse about the nature of our lives? What's implied in this verse, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, about the nature of our lives? It's about what God wants. If we're a temple for God, what does that mean? Yeah, our body should glorify God. The way we use our body should glorify God. What else does it mean? What happens in a temple? Worship. What what does God do in the temple? Dwells. What does he do while dwelling? Be worshipped. Absolutely. 
If there's worshiping going on and God's there, we better hope he's the one being worshiped. That's what our bodies are. Our bodies are a temple. So as we walk around and we go individually, collectively, we collectively are a temple unto the Lord, a place where God dwells, a people who are special to God. The last thing on this holy note is that we're pure, strange to the world, special to God and pure. I want you to read with me chapter 5. And what I want you to listen for, I'm going to read the whole chapter, it's short, it won't take me very long. What I want you to listen for is who was guilty of the worst sin. Now normally I would say don't try to rate sins because that gets real dangerous and real slippery and generally you're a little more partial toward yourself. But in this chapter I want you to pay attention to who's in the wrong and who is addressed most emphatically by Paul for being in the wrong. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, first of all, please notice that Paul is surprised. If we find sexual immorality in the church today, usually people don't go, it is reported that there is sexual immorality in the church. Why is that? Well, it's because we're more of a reflection of the culture than we are of the holiness of being the temple of God. So he is saying, it is actually reported that there is sexuality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. He's saying the the pagans have higher moral values than you do. Your moral compass appears to be more broken than the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. If you break that down and you carry the one, usually that means it's his stepmom. That's what we're talking about, the stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, don't associate with sexually immoral people. He's like, obviously I'm not talking about unbelievers or else you would have to go out of the world to find a place to associate with people. He's talking about the church. He says, but now, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Don't even have dinner with him. Put him out of the church, and don't even have him over for dinner when you start missing him. Why? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What's the main problem addressed in this chapter? Who's guilty of sin in this chapter? 
Say that again? The believer? Okay. What, what's addressed? Who's, who's, who's real guilty? Interesting. Because when you read that the first time, it's like, that dude slept with a stepmom. That's gross. That's wrong. You shouldn't do that. You would imagine his dad would have been very upset. I mean, it's gross. It's wicked. And you, see, you can see that and be like, oh, man, this guy is terrible. Paul's not yelling at that guy. Who is Paul emphatically correcting? The church. What is he correcting him for? What? For judging? For allowing it. For tolerating it. For tolerating it. And not just that. The man sinned, but the church sinned in their toleration of his sin. And they're addressed in this chapter. And even worse, they were proud of their tolerance. Do you see what's going on here? He says, you shouldn't have let this happen. You should, you should do something about this, but you're proud. This isn't the time to be proud. The whole deal is a little leaven, leaven's the whole lump. It's Old Testament imagery of sin is corrosive. It will spread. Sin is not the kind of thing that you keep isolated in a little spot where you go when you want to sin. That's not how it works. It's corrosive. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he's addressing them because they're not only tolerant of the sin, but they're proud of their tolerance. Can you imagine being proud of tolerating sin? Why might someone be proud when they tolerate sin? What are they going for? Acceptance. Why might someone be proud when they tolerate sin? Yep. Maybe they're saying, hey, I'm not sleeping with my stepmom. Right? So maybe they feel self-righteous. That's a problem in the church. Why else might we tolerate sin? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to mess up the vibes. I want to keep the peace. It's interesting. They're tolerating sin to protect unity. But that's not how it works biblically at all. They're tolerating sin to protect unity. Far worse than a church in which a member commits heinous sin is the church that does nothing about it. There's a quote, if you cannot say what the church is not, you cannot say what it is. If the morality of the church is no different from the world's morality, how will the world see a distinction between itself and the church? He continues this in in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If these are the things that characterize your life at the end of your life, you're fooling yourself if you think you will inherit the kingdom of God. These are not what, indi- what are indicative and characteristic now, if you, make, if you steal something or you are sexually immoral and you make a mistake, that doesn't mean you're going to hell. But if you continue in that in an unrepentant manner, it means you are. We're supposed to think that way about sin. And the list is pretty detailed. 
It goes on to say, And such were some of you. Past tense. Guys, this is not who you are in Christ. If you're swindling people out of their money and that's how you make your money, stop. If you're perpetually moving in sexual morality, stop. If you're guilty of adultery or idolatry of any kind, if you're getting drunk all the time, stop. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise up and raise us up by his power. Apparently, there were false teachers in the church saying something along the lines of do what you want with your body because you're going to die and it's going to go away. It was a thought and a, a line of thinking called Gnosticism, where your spirit is separate from your flesh. Like, I love Jesus, but my body's going away, so I can do whatever I want to my body. And so there were false teachers in the church saying, do what you want with your body because it's going to go away. But Paul's emphatic argument for the importance of our bodies is rooted in the resurrection. We need to see this. This is a really important point. Like, if you work with people, counsel people, walk with people who have a disturbed view of their body and what they do with it, or they have a low view even of it. Paul's encouragement on the importance of our bodies is rooted in the fact that you'll be resurrected one day. In, this, in talking about how we act as the temple of God, he puts at the end of it, he says, the resurrection. Don't forget the resurrection. If your bodies weren't important at all to God, he would not have a plan to resurrect your bodies and make them perfect in eternity. So the way you, you treat your body now is important. Paul's emphatic argument for the importance of our bodies and the way we treat them is rooted in the resurrection. The importance of the resurrection shows that God cares about how we use our bodies in this life. And this, again, will be strange to our world, right? It's going to be strange to our world. I was thinking about some song lyrics that terrify me more now because I'm a father of daughters. But you're scrolling through the radio and... Uh, bodies, do what we want with our bodies, um, do what you want with my body, and then you change it, and it's bodies are made for fun. Um, like those are actual lyrics written by actual people who actually affect our culture in a far more significant way than any of us might individually. Just talking about you can do what you want with my body, let me do what I want with your body, and the songs are real cute until your daughters start singing along, and then it's not cute. Then you're realizing, oh my goodness, this is our culture, and this is the way that the culture views our bodies. But we view them differently because we're going to be resurrected one day. So the church is supposed to be holy, indicating that it will be strange to the world, special to God, and pure. And then the church is to be united. It's interesting that the Corinthian church is having a problem with sin and division, but it's not surprising because one thing always leads to another. This is how it happens. This is why we actually practice church discipline in our church. This is why we have accountability. This is why we don't wince at the idea of put, purge the evil person from among you. It's never fun. It's never good. And it's never something that would ever happen quickly. But if someone perpetually moves in sin, 
perpetually moves in sin, never heeding the warnings of brothers and sisters in Christ who are called to take the log out of their own eye so that they can take the speck out of their brother, brother or sister's eye. If they continually do that, we're supposed to put them out of fellowship so they feel the sting of isolation and the seriousness of their sin. Once you start tolerating sin, problems with unity always follow. In fact, if you find a church that has a lot of division and work your way backwards, you'll probably find some areas where sin has really been tolerated. Sin of arrogance, sin of pride, sin of man-centeredness, sin of worldly kingdoms. When we tolerate sin, problems with unity will always follow. Look at 110. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you may be able to say you were baptized in my name. In the same way that Paul said, it has been reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He's also said, it's been reported by Chloe's people that there's division among you. I remember the first time I read this as a kid, and I actually laughed out loud. I did. I grew up as a minister's kid. My mom was a children's minister, still, or was up until a few months ago, and then she transitioned into, she went from children's ministry to um, senior adult ministry overnight. She could write a book about it. It's amazing. Some of them were kids when, she was, when they were little, and now they're 70 um, and 80, some of them 90. But um, I grew up in a church where I knew there was a lot of division. I heard about it from the pulpit. I knew how deacons meetings were apparently really nasty sometimes, and people yelled at each other and didn't act in Christ-like ways. And I knew about all those things because I got sort of a behind-the-scenes view because of my mom being in ministry. And I remember the first time I read this, it is reported that there are divisions among you, that there's quarreling among you. It's like, I thought that's what it meant to be Baptist. Like, we quarrel with each other really consistently about stupid things that don't really matter. That's kind of how I felt when I was younger, because there was a lot of that in the church, and I heard about it. And, it was, and, and the reason I heard about it wasn't because our church was weird. It was because people knew it wasn't right. People will talk about those things because they know it's not right. And I can look back and know that now. But it is reported that there's quarreling among you. So what he's saying at the beginning, he says, I appeal to you that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Do you think that's a realistic expectation of church people? It's supposed to be. Agree, no quarreling. If I was to measure my success of that this week, I would fail. I've quarreled. I've disagreed in ugly ways on things. It happens. But we're supposed to be characterized by unity in Christ. Brad preached a sermon that I'll never forget out of Ephesians 4. And the, the main point of the sermon was this. And it's what we're going to close with tonight. 
The main point of the sermon is that unity is a gift in Christ. You don't create it. We don't sit in a circle and sing kumbaya and cry together to create unity. Much of my student ministry experience was just that. A lot of emotional, let's hold hands, let's cry, and now we're all closer. It's not how you get closer. You have all the unity you need as a gift in Christ. If I walked in here as a guest speaker, and you are Christian people, and I'm a Christian person, and I walk in here, I could say, this is so great that we can just jump right in because we have perfect unity. Because unity is a gift that's given to us in Christ. And the point of Brad's sermon was that you don't create it, you preserve it. The call on us is to preserve unity. Preservatives in food do what? They make it last longer, right? And so if we preserve unity, we are doing everything we can to sustain it, to be the kind of people who are not divided, to be the kind of people who agree and who work together to make sure we're not quarreling all the time. And to me, that sounds like work, right? It takes work to do that. It takes work to not quarrel. It takes work to be in agreement on important things. And it takes tedious work sometimes. Sometimes we we can overlook offenses. That's part of peacemaking in the Bible. Sometimes, hey, overlook the offense. But some things you can't overlook. And in the point that you can't overlook an offense, you have a conflict. And when you have a conflict, you have to work to resolve it. And usually resolving it doesn't just happen like that. Sometimes it takes time to work through those things. In general, if we are a self-concerned people, we embody the nature of the culture around us and have already been defeated. I recently read a Tim Keller quote that says, there's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. We're supposed to be interesting people, but not because of us, but because of Christ. You are part of the most amazing miracles that have ever visited planet Earth. You've been saved by grace through faith from your sin. You've been transferred from darkness to light. We should be some interesting people. Strange is sometimes interesting. But I love the quote. There's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. We are not supposed to be self-absorbed, self-involved people. We are united and we are interested in, the, in others' interests. Something that we go over with our, my kids a lot are don't look out for your own interests only, but also for the interests of others. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And that's something that we have to remember as we are the temple of God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for the time tonight, and I'm thankful for this text. I pray that our time in it next week is fruitful as well as we continue to see what the church is and what the church is not. Lord, thank you for the gift of righteousness. Thank you for setting us apart and making us holy. Thank you for sanctification in which we are a process of being actually made more holy and that we grow in righteous living after having received the gift of righteousness. And Lord, we, um, we thank you for the reminder tonight to, that it's okay to be strange to the world, that it's, it's not a competition to, to gain friends and, and, and influence necessarily, but, but we proclaim the gospel and we're strange to the world, but we are special to you as we are a dwelling place for you. And we know that we're called to be pure. I pray that we would keep those things in mind, knowing that we're also supposed to be united because if we don't keep the calling of holiness in mind, will be a divided people just like they were struggling with in Corinth. Thank you for the warning tonight, and thank you for the encouragement. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.